0: All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to second. Uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter sixteen. Matthew chapter sixteen. If you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and raise your hands, and we'll have an usher uh, get you Bibles. You guys already did it. Oh my goodness, I'm not even paying attention. Landon, you guys are awesome. Thanks, ushers. Matthew chapter sixteen. We're going to be in verses thirteen through twenty. Thirteen through twenty. Let's pray. And then we'll get into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be in this place. Lord, this is not a sacred place because of the building. This is not a sacred place because of decorations. Or this is a sacred place because your people have gathered together. And as one, we are the temple of the Lord where he resides, where he speaks, and where he moves in power and grace. And so, Lord, this morning, as we have the opportunity to dive into your scriptures, would you pour out your spirit on our hearts and minds? Would you give us understanding, not only in our biblical knowledge, but for application for today? Lord, we thank you that many have gone before us to preserve your word. Lord, I ask that you would empower me with your spirit, knowing that I am a sinful man, to teach a perfect word. Lord, I need you, and together, as the body of Christ, we need you to speak today. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Well, if you're new with us this morning, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew in its entirety, verse by verse, and we're now here in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And just to catch you up a little bit in the gospel of Matthew, if you are new, the gospel is simply the story of Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus Christ, everything from his birth to his death and resurrection. And we've seen in Jesus's public ministry that he has been preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven being where Jesus rules and reigns here on earth, where his character, his qualities are magnified and put on display. We've seen Jesus do many things in his ministry up to this point. He has healed the sick, brought sight to the blind, has helped the lame walk, and more importantly than any of those, has expressed, hey, I forgive you of your sins, now go and sin no more. Jesus has literally fed thousands of people from only a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He's cast out demons, showing his power over the spiritual realm, and he's even calmed the seas, showing his authority here on earth over nature that he created. And Jesus most importantly, is raising up disciples. The purpose of his miracles is not only to display the power of God that is fully in him as God, but is also to raise up disciples so that they can do exactly what Jesus is doing. Make ministers of the gospel. To make disciples as Jesus is raising disciples. And we come to this place in Matthew 16 where Jesus has finished some discussion with his disciples about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they were in the habit of placing heavy burdens on the people to follow the law in very specific ways, in ways that God never meant, and it became a religion instead of a relationship. And Jesus is in constant conversation with his disciples about how to have a relationship with God instead of simply just following a religious activity. Because without relationship, there is a lack of love. Without relationship, there is a lack of understanding of who God truly is. And Jesus has warned his disciples to beware of the religion of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus has been traveling with his disciples, and as we'll see, starting in verse 13, he takes them to a special place. So we're going to read our passage this morning, and then we're going to unpack it together. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "'Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?' So they said, "'Some say John the Baptist.'" Some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. A nice, easy passage with no controversy whatsoever this morning. Uh, There's a couple of laughs. If you don't know, these are some significant passages for world religion in general, specifically related to both the Christian and the Catholic Church. And so we're going to unpack some of that this morning. But before we do, the setting that Matthew mentions is incredibly important. Look at verse 13. Where does it say Jesus came into? Which region? Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Now this isn't just a mention of a a random location. This is incredibly important for our understanding of the passage. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history about Caesarea Philippi. And I promise you won't be bored. Caesarea Philippi looked like this in Jesus' day. We have a picture on our screen. This is what Caesarea Philippi looked like in Jesus' day. Starting from left... All the way to the right, the building on the left was a temple to honor Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor and ruler. It was literally a place where people would go to worship Caesar. Caesar was seen as a Roman god. He was considered divine by the Roman people, and he was worshipped. Now, it's a little bit difficult to see in this picture, but right behind this temple, you can see that there's a dark cutout. That is known as Pan's Cave. Now, just to be clear, this is not Peter Pan. (laughs) Pan was the Greek god of the wild, of shepherds, of wildlife, and of sex, specifically very kinds of perverted sexuality. And Pan was worshipped in this place along with Caesar. And what's interesting about Pan's cave is it was also called the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. The reason why is because in Pan's cave is a very deep pool, so deep that in ancient times they could never get to the bottom with ropes and stones. And so it was known as this gateway to the underworld by the Greeks and the Romans and was very notorious. As a matter of fact, the one who began Caesarea Philippi, who began building around Pan's cave, was Alexander the Great when he conquered this region. As we move from left to right, you see a court. That was a court for... Um, the worship of Caesar, the outdoor court, right in the middle of the picture is the temple of Zeus, who is kind of the head Greek and Roman god. To the right of that was this sacred burial place of sacred goats. Sacred goats. And then right beneath that, to the right, where you can see worshippers standing, worshipping some statues, that was the actual temple of worship for the p- god Pan. Um, The God Pan is where we get the word panic. He was chaotic. He was uncertain. He was tempestuous. He was unknown in what he would do or how he would act. He was unstable. Jesus specifically chooses this place to ask his disciples some very, important questions. What a backdrop that Jesus chose. We're going to go to another picture so you can see what it looks like today. This is what Caesarea Philippi looks like today. There's Pan's Cave. You can still go visit it. It's uh, at the foothills of Mount Hermon, which is just by the Golan Heights in Israel. It's a beautiful place, almost tropical, and you can see all the different ruins of these various temples in which there was much worship of Roman and Greek gods, of mythology, of sexuality, of man. Jesus specifically chooses this background to ask his disciples these questions. The first one in verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, "'Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?' The Son of Man was a title that Jesus often used for himself. And he's asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And so his disciples give some interesting responses. They say, hey, some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. And here's what's important about why these people have said these things. Uh, If you remember in Matthew chapter 14, what had happened to John the Baptist? You guys awake this morning? (laughs) Someone just went like this. That either means stop preaching or he was beheaded. We'll go with the second one. John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. But what's interesting and what we learn in Matthew 14 which we covered is that Herod actually thought that John the Baptist had come back to life in the person of Jesus because of the miracles that he was doing. Other people said that maybe Jesus was Elijah resurrected. Um, That would make sense from a biblical standpoint because it was said that Elijah would return before the Messiah came. It was also said that Um, the Messiah would come doing great miracles like Elijah. But we also know that in Matthew chapter 17, which we'll get to um, after this Christmas season, that Jesus specifically tells his disciples in verses 10 through 13, he says, hey, if you have faith to believe, Elijah has already come, and they knew that he was speaking about John the Baptist, or excuse me, about um, Elijah. And so we can eliminate that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah, and then others say, oh, maybe he's another prophet like Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. He had a pretty rough career as a prophet, Um, zero conversions, which is never good in anything. Um, But God doesn't base our obedience on our performance. Jeremiah was obedient, but no, Jesus was not Jeremiah. Out of these three and others that were mentioned, here is what is important. The people around the disciples were constantly pointing to Jesus as simply just a what? As a prophet, as a prophet. Now, the prophet wasn't a small role in Israel, but it was quite a bit less than who Jesus truly was. You see, like the people within this area, we often underestimate Jesus. We often underestimate Jesus. I had a friend of mine come to me this week, and he literally pulled out of his pocket this huge wad of cash. And he goes, look, look, Jesus is blessing me. And it was interesting. This is someone who normally doesn't have a lot of money and he had come into some money. And yet his view of Jesus was simply that Jesus was like a bank account. Or how many of us in our lifetime, including myself, have thought of Jesus as a matchmaker? Like Jesus, come on, this is the one, this is the relationship. Anybody relate to that? We often underestimate Jesus, and that's what was happening during Jesus' ministry. People did see him as having the power of God in some capacity, but they only saw him as a prophet, not the Messiah, not the returning Savior, not God in the flesh. And it's good for us to think and to reflect, where in our lives are we underestimating Jesus Where in our lives are we underestimating Jesus? Is it in a broken marriage or relationship with family? Do we believe that Jesus has the power to heal and to forgive? Is it in a strained relationship with a child or one that you're currently still rearing or with a parent that you're frustrated with because of things that they've done in their past? Oh. Someone's phone is reading the scriptures. Hey, that's better than the NFL game going off in the second service, just to be clear. Do we underestimate Jesus in addictions or in sins that have plagued us our whole life, that he can release us from the bondage of the things that we struggle with? We often underestimate Jesus, but here's the amazing part of scripture. The purpose of saying this is not to condemn anyone because in this room, how many of you have ever underestimated Jesus? Look around for just a second. That's everybody. Now, it doesn't make it okay, but what it reminds us of is something that we see in the scriptures. Did the disciples underestimate Jesus? Yeah, of course they did. They couldn't understand who he was in his totality. They didn't understand fully that he would go to the cross to give his own life, which was unprecedented to think that the Messiah would do that, right? The Jews thought the Messiah would come to conquer Rome and to reestablish the authority of King David and King Solomon on earth. They underestimated Jesus, no different than we do. And it's not something that we should be beat up about, but it is something that we should ask ourselves, are there specific areas of my life Where I'm underestimating Jesus. Where I have understanding of his power. And of his truth. And what he can do. So we continue in verse 15. Jesus then asks them this question. But who do you say that I am? A very interesting question from Jesus. Given the backdrop. Here they are. Amongst. The temple of Zeus, the cave of Pan, a temple erected to Caesar Augustus, literally people in Caesarea Philippi worshiping these mythical gods, worshiping sexuality, worshiping essentially themselves. And Jesus wants to know from his disciples, who do you say that I am? The answer to this question is vital. Our response is not merely our opinion that has no consequence. Rather, our response is a matter of right doctrine on which all of humanity's eternal life and death will hinge. The answer to the question when Jesus says, who do you say that I am, determines our ultimate destination in the afterlife. This is an important question That Jesus is not only asking his disciples, but that he asks us, Who do you say that I am? And in good fashion, if you know anything about the Gospels, Peter's the first one to answer. Peter's almost always the first one to do anything. Oftentimes it's foot and mouth or he does something foolish. But look at what he says in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Did Peter get it right? Oh, come on. Did Peter get it right? Oh, he finally got one right. Now, here's what we love about Peter. Peter often gets a bad rap because of what I just said. But here's the beauty of Peter. Is he is the first one to step out when he thinks Jesus needs him. Now, he really doesn't have an understanding yet that he's the one who truly needs Jesus. But boy, is Peter a good friend. If you wanted a best friend, Peter would be the guy to have. He'd go to war for you. He'd go to bat for you. He'd try to keep you safe. He would encourage you. And Peter steps up and he answers this question. In verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, which simply means Messiah the coming one, the anointed one, the promised one of Israel, the son of the living God. Now, I want to take a little mystery out of how Peter is able to say this. First, we know that the disciples have now been with Jesus for over a year and a half, and they have seen a tremendous amount of his power actually done in the flesh. And again, if we were to go back, in Matthew. Do you guys remember when Jesus calmed the storm? How many of you remember that story? When Jesus calms the storm and he gets into the boat and everything is still, it says that all the disciples said this Truly, you are the Son of God, and they fell down and worshiped him. It's not just Peter, even though he's the one who has the response. All of the disciples have most likely had discussion about who Jesus is, and Peter has his answer ready to go because the disciples already have discussed this very thing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love Peter's response because he also adds in the living God. With the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, this is important. You have Caesar Augustus who dies. You have Pan who's not even real. You have Zeus who's not even real. And yet all of them are worshipped and glorified in a way that are leading people to eternal destruction. And what does Peter do to distinguish Jesus that is different from the things of this world? He says, you are the son of the living God. It gives us connotations to go back into the Old Testament. Even when Moses is having conversation with God. God tells him, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I'm the God of the living and not the dead. This is essential to Peter's confession. Now, it is interesting that Peter says the perfect response. It's interesting that Peter says the perfect response because here's the thing we have to also answer the question, how did Peter figure this out? How are you sitting in church here today? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands for a specific reason, but I just want you to think about this. Did you discover Jesus? Or did Jesus discover you? Did you figure out that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life? Or did Jesus reveal to you that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Now, here's my assumption, because this is where I'm at. Part of me knows, theologically, that the latter is true. Listen, Jesus found me. Uh, He revealed to me who he is. But there's also part of me that goes, yeah, but I'm involved in this somehow, right? (laughs) Anybody else think that same way? Yeah, we absolutely are. And we get an understanding when Jesus responds to Peter's confession that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which simply means son of Jonah. That was his dad's name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. My question to you is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? If you say that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the King, your authority, your Lord and Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, how did you come to that understanding? Well, Jesus says, Peter Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Well, what does that mean? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This specifically means that you didn't get this from your college education. You didn't get this from being smart enough and knowing enough about the Bible. You didn't get this because you went to an amazing service and the pastor spoke an incredible message or the worship was so moving or whatever it is experientially that you had. You didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God, because of anything you figured out on your own. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Who reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ? It's not a trick question. Just God. The only way we are able to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, to confess him as king, and to ask forgiveness for our sins, is because God has revealed to us who he is. Here is why that's so important. This is not something that's only taught here in Matthew. This is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. God initiates the revelation of Jesus as Messiah. God initiates our revelation of Jesus as Messiah. From the beginning, God has been the initiator. The earth was formless. There was darkness and it was void. And God said, let there be what? Let there be light, and there was light. And if we were to go through the six days of creation, who is the initiator? God. And what is the responder? His creation. When it comes to matters of our salvation, we cannot be the initiator, and this is important for us to understand. Because if we are the initiators of our salvation, who gets the credit for us being saved? It's us. Which is why Jesus wants to clarify with Peter. Peter, you got the right answer, buddy. Way to go. And my Father in heaven gets the credit for your confession that you have understanding that I am the Messiah, Christ the King. Church family, let me encourage you about something. Having an understanding that God is the initiator of our salvation takes so much of the burden off of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Who initiated your forgiveness? Thank you. <laughs> Come on, church family. These aren't trick questions. Who initiated our forgiveness? It's Jesus Jesus, through the cross, shed his own blood so that we could be forgiven. The scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the initiator. We are the responders. This role that God takes in our lives carries on in the various areas that he shares with us. As husbands, husbands, who is to be the initiator of creating a God-founded marriage? Sweet mercy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now you are messing with me. (laughs) We're going to just go on a marriage route from here on out. Husbands, who has the role of initiator in marriage? Husband. Thank you. It's the husband. As parents, mom or dads, who has the role to initiate conversation with their kids about Jesus Christ? It's the parents. As followers of Jesus, who has the role of initiating those Bible-based, encouraging conversation with unbelievers. It should be us. What Peter is being taught by Jesus is essential for our understanding of the right order of our salvation. God reveals himself to us, and we are called to respond. Specifically, we respond with confession and worship. We respond with confession and worship. I love this about Peter. I don't believe Peter was just blurting out the right answer. I believe Peter wholeheartedly, as much as he could in his understanding of Jesus at that time, believed exactly what he said. And here's why that's so beautiful for us today. How many of you would say, Oh, I fully understand Jesus and all of his magnificence in eternity. And yeah, none of us would, of course not. And yet how many of you would say, I understand enough about Jesus that I've given him my life. That's incredible. And that's the kind of God that we serve. You don't have to know everything. As a matter of fact, you only have to respond to what has been revealed to you. And over time, more and more of Jesus, as you read his word, as you fellowship with his people, as you use your giftings and serve, you grow in your understanding of who Jesus is so that the confession you've already made only grows in its magnificence. Knowing wholeheartedly that Jesus is the King. Now Jesus has told Peter, hey Peter, you're right, way to go. How many of you love encouragement in here? Yeah, almost all of us love encouragement. There's nothing like a good pat on the back if you played sports, a pat on the butt, a way to go, a boy, whatever it is. It just builds us up. This is why the reading of scripture throughout your week is so important. It's meant to build you up. It's meant to encourage you. And now Jesus is going to do something that has caused controversy within the church world for thousands of years. Are you guys ready for verses 18 and 19? Here we go. Jesus says this to Peter. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys... Of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth. Will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth. Will be loosed in heaven. Wow. You thought Peter was excited about getting the right answer. do, Do you think he's excited now? This is amazing. Jesus has spoken some powerful words to Peter. Now the question is. What do they mean? In what context. Does Jesus tell Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. In what context does Jesus tell Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. That's a lot of responsibility, is it not? And so a good, healthy understanding of what Jesus is speaking to Peter is important for our own faith. We begin with Jesus saying, and I also say to you that you are Peter. In the Greek, he calls Peter Petros with a capital P. This is a uh, personal pronoun. He's being called by his name. This was his Roman name, by the way. His Jewish name was Cephas. Um, He's being called Peter Petros, which means small rock. Petros means small rock. And he says, hey, you are Peter. And on this rock, this word is Petra. It's different from Petras. Petra is a very large rock, could even be a mountain. And on this large rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think it's important for us to take a look at the doctrine of both the Christian church and the Catholic church. In the Catholic church, which, by the way, the reason why we're going to talk about this is because it's estimated that there are 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. That is not a small number of people. It's over a seventh of the world. And 1.3 billion people identify as Catholic and submit themselves to the office of the Supreme Pontiff, the Papacy, also known as the Pope. And the papacy is derived directly from this section of scripture in which the Catholics believe that Jesus is telling Peter, you are the rock that I am going to build my church on. And from that understanding for the Catholic Church, we have the line of popes and the entire liturgy of the Catholic Church. Now, the Pope is seen as someone who is infallible. Infallible simply means cannot say anything wrong. We believe that the Bible is infallible, that it is perfect, that it is the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men over the course of 2,000 years on three different continents. But we certainly don't believe that any other person other than Jesus who's walked the earth is infallible. Now here's something I want to make clear before we go any deeper. I have some amazing Catholic friends and people who I've grown up with who love Jesus with all their heart. Being Catholic does not mean you're not saved. But just like in different parts of the Christian church, if there is bad doctrine and theology, it can lead people astray and it can lead them to death. So this is not an attack on the Catholic church. This is a response to what they believe in looking at what the rest of the Bible has to say specifically about this passage. Now, if we take this to say that Jesus is calling Peter the rock that he will build his church on, there are some significant things that we need to address. Number one, that would place Peter in the position of Jesus. That would place Peter in the position of Of Jesus which means that everything will now hinge on Peter's authority and his life now when we look at scripture in its entirety I'm not going to give it away but if you go down to verse 23 of this chapter here are the words that Jesus says about Peter get behind me Satan you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men if Peter is really the pontiff of the church, he's getting rebuked in like two and a half seconds after being titled this. It doesn't make sense. Now, it also doesn't make sense because Peter himself wrote First and Second Peter. Had Peter been the bishop of Rome, had Peter been the head of the church, he certainly would have identified himself and he would have placed himself in authority over others. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, you can look at it in your own time, Peter uses the words, I exhort my fellow elders, of which I am one. He is equal with his peers. There is nowhere in the scripture whatsoever, whether it's Jesus speaking to Peter, or whether it's Peter writing his own letters to the churches in which he claims or Jesus claims that he is anything more than an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some distinguishing factors about Peter that are important for us to recognize. He is mentioned first in every list when it comes to the disciples. We know that he was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. There were three men that were part of Jesus' inner circle. But what's maybe most important is this language that Jesus uses in verses 18 and 19 are not the only place that he uses them. Specifically, he does tell Peter, Hey Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he is talking to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. But if you were to turn over to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, He says the exact same thing to his disciples as a whole. The U in Greek is plural. He's speaking to all of his disciples, not just Peter. It's the exact same language. So that as we look at this, we start to have some deep theological problems with Peter being the rock. So the question becomes, who is the rock of the church? Jesus, that's a great guess. I love that. Uh, You're totally right. Way to go. I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures to you. They'll be up on your screen. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. This comes from what's known as the Song of Moses. This is in the Old Testament before the Israelites enter into the promised land. And Moses is singing this song of praise to God. And here is what he says. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does not do wrong. How just and upright he is. According to God's word, who is the rock? Specifically here it says God. Not on your screens, but I want to read this nonetheless to clarify about the Old Testament, Paul writes about the time of Moses when he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. He writes to the church in Corinth and he says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Paul is reminding them of God's deliverance through the Red Sea as they escaped Egypt. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. Again, I know we're getting into some history, but I think this is important for a right understanding of doctrine. Paul and Peter were alive at the same time we know that Paul and Peter had interactions together. As a matter of fact, there was a time when Paul rebuked Peter. Does anybody remember that story? Peter got a little nervous about having some Gentiles with him, and so he kind of went back to some old Judaism ways, and Paul came to his face and confronted him lovingly, but said, hey, brother, what is this thing that you are doing? Let's not go back to the old ways. Remember, the gospel has set all men free. It would be highly unlikely for Paul to be able to rebuke Peter if he was the head of the church, the bishop of Rome, the supreme pontiff of all that stands within the Catholic church. Finally, in Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 48, one of maybe the most profound teachings of Jesus being the rock is this. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on what? Founded on the rock. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock. It cannot be Peter. Now, Peter had an important role to play. There is no question. But by no means was Peter the rock. And so how do we read this? When Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, we can probably look at it a couple of ways. Perhaps Jesus gestured to himself when he said on this rock, I will build my church. Or it's possible that Jesus was referring to the confession that Peter had just made. That you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. On that rock, the church would be built. Now notice something about Jesus. He tells Peter this, but he specifically says, On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus owns his church. Jesus owns his church. This may not seem like an important point or something that is new to us, but I think we need to have an understanding of why this is essential. For many people in our day and age, in Western society, how much work does the CEO of a large corporation actually do? Sometimes not much. Now, that's not always true. But oftentimes, the CEO collects the big paycheck, has the shares, um, is the face, but really doesn't do that much work. And outside of having CEO on their name, doesn't have a lot of investment or ownership in what they actually own. Does that make sense? Jesus is making it clear. I will build my church. Now, here's the beauty Of what Jesus is taking off of Peter's shoulders. Who will be the builder of the church? It's Jesus. It's not Peter. That would be a lot of pressure, wouldn't it? Every time Pastor Dave and I get up here to preach. Guys, so much work goes into this. So much prayer goes into this. We wholeheartedly want to rightly teach God's word and yet we recognize we're imperfect men and it's this insurmountable task. But it's not us who builds the church. It's not our amazing or lame sermons that build or make the church decrease. It's not the decorations that build the church or at least it shouldn't be. It's not the branding of the mission church that makes the church. Guys, it's Jesus who builds the church. He owns his church. And the church is made up of who? The body body of Christ. Those who confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is why it was so important for Peter to have understanding that it's Jesus who owns his church Peter doesn't have to own the church. He gets to participate in the church. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Finally, the last thing Jesus says in regards to the church, he says the gates of Hades will not prevail. It's pretty awesome to think that the very background Jesus of speaking is, is you've got the Pan's cave, the gates of Hades right behind him. And Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Hell, not as in where people go to spend their eternity because they reject Christ. The powers of hell, meaning Satan, sin, death, evil powers at work in our world, the unseen spiritual forces of darkness, these things cannot stop the church. This is a promise from Jesus. And here's why that promise is so powerful. If it was based on Peter's leadership, I might struggle to believe that. But because it's Jesus who builds his church, I have no problem believing that the gates of hell will not prevail because it doesn't rest on a man. It's secure in Christ. Does that make sense? Evil will have no lasting victory. Evil will have no lasting victory. Now we come to this last part of the passage, which also has much controversy in verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, and I will give you, he is talking to Peter here, it's the singular form of you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Quite a statement from Jesus, what is this binding and loosing and what exactly are the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Well, again, if we go back to Catholic understanding, there's often a literal picture of Peter holding two keys and standing at the gates of heaven. And too often it is taught or understood or depicted that Peter is the one who gets to do what in heaven? Either lets you in or you don't get in. But notice what Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? And here's the beauty of what Jesus is teaching Peter. Where does this authority come from in which people go to heaven or go to hell? Who does it reside with? It resides with Jesus. Jesus is the authority. Now, Jesus is doing something specific here with Peter. And then in Matthew 18, 18, I won't go through it in its entirety, but he says the exact same words to the totality of the disciples or the apostles. He also tells the group of the apostles, not just the singular, the group. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose in earth will be loosed in heaven. Here is what Jesus is doing. It is his authority given to Peter and the apostles, in which, through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sins are forgiven on earth as they are in heaven. And sins are bound to people when they don't repent on earth. It will be bound to them in eternity in heaven. In Acts chapter 2, this day known as Pentecost, there was a time where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and they are filled with the Spirit and it says that they spoke in tongues or specifically different languages. Languages of the people who were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover festival. And Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaches Jesus' death and, and resurrection and how there's new life. And the response from this gospel that's initiated through the authority of Jesus Christ, through Peter to people, as they say, "Oh, what have we done? And what should we do?" And Jesus says, "Repent of your sins." Excuse me. Peter says, "Repent of your sins and be baptized." This is a great example of loosing people from their sins. Not because Peter in it of himself has the authority, but where has Peter received the authority? Oh, We've got to get this right, church. Where's Peter received the authority? It's been from Jesus. From Jesus. Now, it's important that we understand that this was special from Jesus to the apostles. I don't believe that this, this is for every single person, But where we see this exercise today is in ecclesial or church authority. Ecclesial or church authority. How do we know that? Well, again, if you went to Matthew 18, 18, or excuse me, just Matthew 18, it talks about how we are to resolve issues with our brothers and sisters. If someone sins against you, what should you do? Individually, not with a group, not with Instagram, not with video. Go to them individually and say, hey, Listen, you you sinned against me. We need to work this out. If that person repents, they are restored. If that person does not repent, then there's another process. You now bring two with you to say, hey, brother or hey, sister, what's going on here? You're living in sin. And if that person repents, they're restored. If that person doesn't repent, there's still another process. It's this pursuit of mercy, not punishment. And you bring them before the elders of the church, it says. And the elders of the church go, hey, brother, hey, sister, what's going on in your life? We see this sin. It's withholding you from God's spirit. If that person repents, they are restored. If that person does not repent, the church leadership is to cast them outside of the church until there is repentance. They are bound in their sin on earth because of their lack of repentance and that is bound in heaven as well because without repentance there cannot be the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus says to Peter, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I want to finish with this. That last part was for ecclesial authority or church leadership and authority. It's why you have pastors. Now, if Pastor Dave and I ever come shaking our fists at you, condemning you and telling you what a horrible person you are, go find another church, please. Seriously. But we have been given authority to spiritually lead in which we are to lovingly and effectively come alongside you and to say, hey, what is going on in your life? We see this happening, or we see this happening. There needs to be repentance of sin. I know in this room that's happened. And it's for the purpose of building up the church, not tearing it down. Just as the purpose of Jesus' forgiveness is to bring many into his kingdom, not to exclude them. Now, for the rest of us, here is something that I believe God does that is very encouraging. As Jesus speaks to both his disciples and also to Peter, he gives us an owner's mentality. Jesus gives us an owner's mentality. you see all these lights? The people who did this had an owner's mentality. And guess what? I didn't do it and Dave didn't do it. These were volunteers who did this. They had an owner's mentality. Someone who sees that someone's hurting And comes and walks alongside them. Encourages them in God's word. Spends time in prayer and communion and fellowship with them. That's having an owner's mentality. Someone who's invested financially. Someone who's invested in their giftings. Someone who's invested in the way that they serve. That's an owner's mentality. And Jesus calls his disciples to have that owner's mentality. Now, who will build the church? jesus he will build the church and on whose authority will he build the church it's his own and yet as responders as participators we are called to have this owner's mentality in the kingdom of heaven in which no we don't just have the pastors do what we call the real work do you know why we stand up here and preach it's so that you will grow and learn so that you can do what during your week Yeah, so that you can share this good news with others. It's amazing to me if we drew little webs from each person, maybe there's, you know, um, I'm just going to say there's 99 people in here because that's COVID regulations. Um, (laughs) If we drew 99 little webs of all the people that you touched during the week in your workplace, in your communities, and in your families, how much more preaching is being accomplished through you than from this pulpit here on Sunday mornings? Do you have an owner's mentality? Or do you just come on Sundays? Or do you just look for a message to help you feel better? Or do you take what you're learning and growing in and apply it to your life by sharing it with others, not only in words, but in deeds as well? So that when someone gets upset at you, you don't return that, but you show mercy that when your spouse nags at you for the 50th time about whatever that is, you only show grace and you pursue to understand why they're upset. God gives us that owner's mentality for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus, who is the true authority of the church. True authority is found in Jesus and God's word. True authority is found in Jesus... And God's word. Jesus is the rock of the church. God's word is the prophets and the apostles. What they have written, inspired by the spirit, to guide and direct and shepherd the church. It's what we preach from every Sunday. True authority comes from Jesus and God's word. We finish this passage in verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Uh, This is not uncommon of Jesus to do before his uh, death and resurrection. Many people just thought that Jesus or someone like him would come to restore Israel, to help them get out of the oppressive thumb of Rome. But Jesus doesn't want that kind of popularity because it underestimates who he is. And so he wants to keep quiet his title for now until his death and resurrection. Now for us, on this side of history, are we to be quiet about Jesus? No. But we're, to, we're also supposed to help people understand who Jesus is and who he is not. We're to help people not underestimate who he is so that they can understand that he is the rock of the church, not a pastor, not a pope, not a prophet that claims all sorts of things about the coming destruction of America and all of the horrible things that are out there on YouTube and everywhere else. Jesus is the rock of the church. Church family, I encourage you. You have spiritual leadership here that loves you. Now we know that we don't have deep relationships with every single one of you but we take this role seriously as I believe Peter took his role seriously. And together with an owner's mentality, with the kingdom of heaven here at the mission church, what kind of impact can you have in the places where God sends you? In these days... Where we believe that Jesus is returning soon, when we see the corruption of man taking over governments, when we see a market that is volatile, when we see brokenness in families, when we see an attack on marriage, when we see genocide happening in different countries and entire nations being toppled over by rebellion, here is what we know our hope is built on nothing less and Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I forgot the rest of that refrain. Thank you. I encourage you this week, take inventory of that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you say that he's Messiah, if you say that he's king, then ask yourself if you have an owner's mentality and are you putting it into practice? Are you doing what God's called you to do in making disciples in knowing that all authority comes from him and that authority is for the purpose of restoring people to right relationship with God the Father?